Hi, this is Carla Bailo. Welcome to the Car Podcast today. I'm joined by John Bazella. He is the president and CEO for the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. He's a veteran auto industry executive and has worked in the automotive field for many years, starting at Chrysler Group since 2009, and then uh, now working as the president and CEO for the Alliance of Automotive Innovation. Previous to that, he was the president and CEO of the Association of Global Automakers. Today, we're going to tackle some really relevant issues that we're facing in the automotive industry. But we're going to start with what is the overall impact of the automotive industry on the economic engine in the U.S.? How many plants and how many workers and how does that correlate to ancillary workers and total employment? And then we're going to dig into the supply chain issues as well that are so relevant and continue to hound the industry. So stay tuned. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be talking with you today. Fantastic. You know, I mentioned some of the discussions that are taking place about manufacturing here in the U.S. and factors that might be playing a role in what's going on across the sector. So how would you characterize the current state of U.S. automotive manufacturing? Well, I guess we can say it's good and bad. Good is we've got lots of money coming in, lots of investments for electric vehicle manufacturing, battery manufacturing. Then you look at the negative side, we have the supply chain issues, the workforce issues, inflation, and all of these are driving different behaviors in terms of purchases, discretionary spending, And this has caused some manufacturing plants to have to actually shut down for some time. And as a manufacturer, you never want to do that. So I I would say there's many stresses, but at the same time, there's a lot of great investment happening because in general, the automotive industry is still very robust financially. Yeah. I just want to break those two threads up, the good news and the bad news, and come come to the start with the bad news because it really is this immediate situation, right? And what you're referring to with regard to the supply chain challenge, most notably, it would seem to me, is the significant shortage of auto-grade microprocessors, right? The computer chips that go into these rolling computers, also known as automobiles, right? Production is down fairly significantly against, say, pre-pandemic times, right? Say 2019 at this time, right? Absolutely. We're down at least about 15 to 20% from what we were then, and even down actually from a year ago. So we're seeing just really slow recovery in terms of the semiconductor issue. And of course, further complicated by what's been happening geopolitically with the conflict in Ukraine and, you know, lack of neon, precious materials skyrocketing. So you've got not only the shortage, but you have raw material prices, steel, aluminum, starting to really impact not just the OEMs, but the supply base as well. Yeah. You mentioned neon, for example, Ukraine being one of the biggest producers of neon in the world. And neon, of course, is required for the fabrication of computer chips. Uh, And so you can see this incredible impact. And, you know, you would argue, I would think that that's part of what's creating this inventory problem, right? We have strong demand for new cars and light trucks, but we can't produce 
enough vehicles to meet demand. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, absolutely. The demand is still there. We have consumers that are anxious to purchase a vehicle. They just don't have the capacity or we don't have the stock sitting out there for folks to purchase them. And when we look at the semiconductor industry, just a a couple of things that I recently learned going to a semiconductor strategy conference. Automakers make up 10% of total global supply or demand for semiconductors. That's 10% primarily legacy chips as well. So the semiconductor industry is now thinking, quite frankly, that they're starting to see a shift in supply and demand, and they think they're going to start being oversupplied. And these are mainly on consumer goods, your laptops, your tablets, your phones, where they're seeing the demand during COVID now start to fall off. So it's interesting when you look at their industry and they're saying, we're going to be oversupplied pretty soon. And you look at our industry and we're still starving for these chips. We've talked a little bit about what we should do to really try to change that. And what kind of commonization of standards can we potentially do? How can we begin to start using the more modern and updated chips as we go forward and vehicles become you know, more intelligent? So anything that we can do in that regard to make the specification very much like some of the other chips that are currently used will help. But remember, automotive durability is not like a refrigerator durability. So we still have to have that robustness that only our industry needs. Yeah. And when you think about that type of work, thinking about not only the mature nodes of microprocessors, but advanced nodes, there's also a policy role, right? I mean, we see a debate taking place in Congress right now about U.S. competitiveness and part of the legislation is funding and supporting U.S. investments in microprocessor fabrication, which you could argue is part of, I think, a solution to having a robust supply in the future for cutting-edge automotive manufacturing. Yeah, indeed. If we can get the CHIPS Act through, that's better for the industry. And as we've been faced with these supply chain issues, starting with semiconductors, I think every company is taking a serious look at their supply chains and what do they need to bring on shore? What do they need to have multiple sources for? And it's really become quite a talent and skill to do this kind of risk management, to look deeply and determine where is it risky, be it weather, be it geopolitical, be it just the working conditions of the economy that you're importing these products from. The visibility of supply chains has never been more important, and it's something that, quite frankly, over the years, a lot of the automotive companies have delegated to the suppliers or even their sub-suppliers, and now it's becoming clear that maybe that process has to change. Yeah. Let's talk about the suppliers or the supply base. When people think about automotive manufacturing, I think a lot of people in their mind conjure up what we would call a final assembly plant, right? They see a body moving down an assembly line and an engine drops in and doors come onto the vehicle. But auto manufacturing in the United States is much bigger and broader than that, right? So talk a little bit about what the supply base is and what it looks like here in the United States. And I would also say how much it's changed over the past, I would say, 10 years dramatically. So most of the parts coming into an assembly plant, which by the way, I just love going in an assembly plant. If I smell paint fumes, I, I just get all geeked out. You know, nothing is more exciting to me. 
But beneath that, there are a lot of people providing parts, be that full instrument panels in some of the big tiers provide big consoles and units, front end modules. The whole module comes in and goes on the vehicle. And that module is comprised of many, many different parts. In addition to that, you have the paint and lubricants coming in to paint the vehicle and all the different chemicals that are needed. You have, in today's world, a lot of work being done in the software element, programming the human-machine interface. This is really an art so that people are really happy with that experience in their product and becoming more and more important than some of the mechanicals. You have the brakes, the tires. I mean, it's a very complex set of materials that are coming in. And then more importantly than that is the timing of those materials coming in. Some of them come in just in time for the the vehicle to be produced because you don't want to have all that inventory sitting in your factory or in a warehouse nearby because that's just dollars on your books. And you really want to be able to have that come in just in time. And then there's others that you buy in bulk and and keep it. So it really depends. And when I was mentioning before that whole process being under scrutiny, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Some of these just-in-time products, maybe just-in-time isn't so good anymore with the logistical issues that we're having. And as we move into electric vehicles, we're seeing a much more comprehensive look at what those facilities will look like. So not just the manufacturing plant, but maybe you need to have the suppliers in the same complex for some of those vital parts and have a recycling center there. Of course, a battery manufacturer needs to be there because you don't want to be, in general, transporting batteries over huge logistical paths. So we're starting to see more and more thinking about what these supplier battery parks will look like, what must be contained in them. And then, of course, the people who want to prepare their states or their municipalities for these kinds of parks, they really want to know how big and what do I have to have ready so that the automakers will be willing to come and do something here. When I think about it, as you're describing this enormously complex logistical manufacturing supply chain dance that takes place, You know, it's taking place geographically very broadly across the United States and among a large number of players, right? I mean, we've got maybe 15 or so automotive manufacturers that are doing final assembly here in the United States and supply chains that are supporting those companies. CAR has, I think it's referred to as a book of deals, which I love to look at. It's really exciting because it kind of tracks what these investments look like. So tell us a little bit about what do automaker investments and major supplier investments look like today? What companies are investing here and what types of investments are being made? The vast majority of investments today are coming in the electric vehicle space, be it an electric vehicle plant or a battery plant. We saw the recent one by Ford in the Kentucky, Tennessee area. We have seen recently even Toyota and uh, Mazda working hand in hand and creating a a plant in the Southeast. Nissan has said their Mississippi plant is going to be refurbished for electric vehicles. Those are just a few that we're seeing, not to mention some of the investments that are coming in from Magna, from Bosch, some of the big suppliers that are also looking at propulsion parts for electric vehicles and or 
interior components because the entire vehicle is being thought about differently. When we think about an electric vehicle and being able to recycle it, designing for recyclability is much different than how we design today, quite frankly. So the entire process is being looked at. And then for all of these different investments that we're talking about, that impacts the supply base. It also impacts several other industries within a municipality's economy. So when you ticked off a number of companies, you mentioned companies that are based here in the United States, as well as companies who are headquartered elsewhere. What makes the United States a good place for automotive manufacturers, wherever they happen to be headquartered? or major suppliers to invest here in the United States. Why is it a good investment for them? Yeah, I mean, we're still a very large market for them. That's clear. But when companies first started coming here, a lot of it was to do with taxable reasons back in the 70s and 80s. But quite frankly, building a car somewhere else with intelligence from another country is always difficult and risky. A lot of the products that first came here for the American customer, they weren't right for a number of areas. So what we see a lot of the companies doing when they come here, they don't just start something and bring over the employees from their own country. They may start that way, but then they realize very quickly it needs to have be staffed by Americans. And what I'm talking about here is a lot of the R&D. Of course, the manufacturing needs to be done by by American employees. But they realize that they don't understand the American customer perhaps as well as they thought they did. And to really be able to make the car to the American taste, they need to be here. They need to be integrated into the economy. They need to understand the way life works here, quality of life. And they need to have that kind of intelligence in the company all the way from the planning process all the way through to how it's sold at the dealership and, you know, even at end of life, how we keep loyalty. And of course, when you make a product that is delighting to the customer, provides their needs, you get that loyalty. So learning over time, it's really good to be in the market with people from that economy working for your company to really understand the customer and make your product right. Yeah. So all of these plants, these are Americans building American products for American consumers and maybe even for export abroad. Absolutely. I mean, we're a great export hub for several of the vehicles. I know a lot of the manufacturing plants are exporting to GCC, Gulf Coast countries, exporting to South America, exporting to Australia. We're a great export hub and a lot of our partners down in Mexico as well. That's another great global hub for exporting. So the products that we're making here aren't necessarily just for America. It's a global path today where these vehicles are going. Yeah. And so let's talk about what the economic contribution is of these investments, right? This is something I think CAR specializes in. We can think about it in the multiplier effect of jobs or tax revenues or what have you, but how would you describe the economic impact of these investments more broadly on the U.S. economy? Yeah, fundamentally, for each job in the industry itself, it creates between five and seven ancillary jobs. And when we look at the total employment in the U.S., you multiply that by five, that's the minimum, 
you're talking 8 million people in some way are impacted by the automotive industry and their income. So that's a huge number of people. And you can't just think about those direct jobs because we were talking about the supply chain earlier, but when you go down to the tier ends, there's somebody making that quart of oil. There's somebody making a piston. There's somebody making even just a bracket. So it's very complex. And then as we've seen during COVID, let's not forget the hotels, the restaurants, every other entity that's in that community that rely on the folks working in the automotive industry to keep their businesses afloat. And we've seen so many of them struggle because we've changed the way we work. And it'll be interesting to see over the years, the manufacturing plant still has to be there and people have to be on site. But in all of the big offices where a number of people are now going to be remote, it's going to change that situation and the way it looks and operates in the future. Right. But that idea that five to seven jobs in addition to that single automotive manufacturing job are created by these investments is something I think is very significant, right? To your point, not only across the supply chain, but the ancillary jobs, you know, the bartender across the street from the plant or the dry cleaner down the street or what have you. So millions of jobs are created based on those initial investments in jobs. I think of a place like West Point, Georgia, for example, where Kia opened a plant around the 2010 timeframe, maybe 2008 to 10 timeframe. And what's happened over the last 15 years to 20 years, the dramatic increase in supplier investments, to your point, around that plant The community, housing starts in that part of Georgia for the first time in a quarter of a century. That type of economic resurgence that happens when companies invest is really what you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a whole ecosystem that that can be created. And we see it in a lot of these communities that companies have chosen to, to invest. So if we look at What happened around the Nashville area when Nissan first put their plant in Smyrna and then moved their headquarters there, what it did for housing communities, how it helped restaurants, how it even helped with entertainment. I mean, there's just more people brings more opportunities. Now, it also brings other problems that you have to deal with in terms of traffic, et cetera. But if you think about that very deeply as a community and What are those things that will cause somebody to move in and how you can be prepared for that? I think the other element that we haven't addressed right now is many companies today want the assurance of continuous learning when they move in. They want to be sure they can hire people for every aspect of the job that they're bringing in, but then they want to be sure that they have those relationships with the local community colleges, the local four-year colleges, that they can continue to keep their employees up to date with technology because technology is moving so fast today. If you're not continuously learning quickly, your workforce becomes obsolete. So they're really looking for those kinds of relationships between the state and the institutions to be sure that that they'll be able to keep that relationship and the assurance that they will stay up to date. Yeah. And staying up to date is critical. As you described earlier, you're seeing this tremendous transformation in the nature of automotive manufacturing, but also in the product itself. So let's finish with that idea. 
we're seeing, as you mentioned, increasing demand in the marketplace for electric vehicles, as well as for vehicles with increased forms of automation, safety, and safety technology. So what does that mean for automotive manufacturing? For example, you mentioned investments in battery plants here in the United States. Talk a little bit more about that and what are some of the other trends that you see in advanced automotive manufacturing as we look into the future? Yeah, as we look into the future, and I think, you know, if you've ever had the opportunity to go to some of the new startup plants, you're going to start to see some of these new ways of manufacturing. If we talk about Industry X, which is smart manufacturing, we're starting to see a lot more automation. As we move into the battery world, when you make a battery, cleanliness is so vital, the lack of dust, and and those plants are exceptionally clean, exceptionally high-powered because of the ventilation systems, and you try to avoid much human interaction, I'll just say. So the more you can have machinery that's already clean be able to do the work, the better. So you're starting to see a lot more complex robotics and other artificial intelligent machinery coming into the game. When you look at an electric vehicle versus an internal combustion engine vehicle, there's quite a few less parts. So automatically, you're going to see less employees. But again, you're going to start to see more and more robotics as we seek to manage the variable workforce that we're seeing today. So a lot more automation is what we're seeing, a lot more intelligence. But when you have that kind of intelligence in the manufacturing plant, then you need people to maintain that. You need people to be sure that the quality control is correct and to be able to analyze and take action. So the data analytics and the ability to understand data becomes very important. So that's what I was talking about a minute ago in terms of this continuous learning. So you may not have as many people on the line, but you need a heck of a lot more people to be managing some of that intelligent automation systems that you have. So predominantly, those are the big changes that we're seeing. Now, that goes all the way up the totem pole in terms of engineering skill, et cetera, because it becomes a shift to more of a human-machine interface, more of a electronics world versus a mechanical world. Yes, mechanical parts are still on the product, but they don't rule the industry like they used to. You know, consumers really want that experience. I hate to say it being a car geek, but they don't care about acceleration and turning anymore. They just want to be able to interface with their car easily and make a phone call and listen to podcasts like this one. So how quickly does my phone connect with Apple CarPlay or Android Auto? It's a whole different way that engineers have to think. And then when you think about this new manufacturing facility, it's a whole different way that the manufacturing process folks need to think as well. So it's a really, it's a fun time. I've never had so much fun in the industry, but it is a time of rapid change. And I don't think we'll see this come to a halt when we talk about not only EVs, but then moving into automated vehicles and the kinds of knowledge that that requires and the different skill sets that that requires. It's just going to continue to blossom over even the next 20 years. Well, Carla, thank you so much. 